0: Good morning, DJ and PK. It's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. All right, we got a lot to get to today. PK is back. He was at the Pac-12 Media Day, took a little time off, hit the beach in Southern California, but he is back to talk Pac-12 Media Day. What he learned, you never know who he talked to off the air, and his impressions of some of the people. You know, we can hear it, but you can see body language and facial expressions. I'm curious who he thinks uh, a little more of after going through Pac-12 Media Day and maybe who he has a few more doubts about as well. We'll get to all of that coming up right now, though. The Utes' Devin Lloyd at Pac-12 Media Day. Here he is.
1: Devin, thanks for a few minutes. How's it going? It's going great. How are you doing? Hey, we're doing great. You, you having fun? You mentioned this is your first Media Day. Is yes. going, going yes. okay?
2: It's a whirlwind, but it's exciting, too. It's,
1: Well, uh, give us your thoughts. Uh, You're coming into this season. You had a great year last year, as weird as as it was. And, uh, you know, we noticed you're on the the first team, all Pac-12, going in. What does it feel to have kind of these expectations going into the season?
2: Um, It's just an honor and a blessing. But um, at the same time, uh, it means nothing just because of, you know, it's a matter of what you prove, you know, in season. Um, And so I'm just – honored to be on the list and everything but you know I hold myself to an even higher expectation the highest expectation on myself and so um, I just plan on just going out there and doing everything I can to um, meet those expectations and you know help my team win a championship.
3: So when you were recruited by Woodingham, who's an expert on putting defensive guys into the NFL what were your expectations at this point in the program as you were forecasting back then till now?
2: Um it would be well simply just to be the best player I can be um you know as far as statistics and all that I, I can't really you know go into great detail but ultimately it would just be to set myself up in a position to uh help my team win a championship and then set myself up in position to uh be a high draft pick So you saw a potential
3: NFL yes. beyond just wanting it to be a goal
2: Yes yes
1: So did that play into the decision to come back to improve NFL status, or was it something you wanted to accomplish at Utah, or a little bit of both? Um,
2: That wasn't the main reason that it it was a part of it for sure. I mean, I was late second, early third. I feel like I could have bumped myself up possibly to a first, but ultimately I really wanted to come back just to finish my career off the right way. Um, I felt like this university, you know, has done a lot for me, and um, I felt like I didn't want to leave my career, um, you know, going 3-2, you know, um, just – with no fans, uh, you know, crazy 2020 COVID season, just uh, full of, you know, just a lot of ups and downs. I really wanted to uh, end it the right way. I really wanted to just go out on top. And obviously, you know, you got to work for everything and nothing is guaranteed is all preseason. But you know, I have high aspirations for this team. And you know, I know the team does as well. And um, no matter what the results are, I just wanted to go out the right way.
3: So last year, you were one of the few guys who had literally any experience because the prior year, you lost so many guys to the NFL. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of those guys got the experience, so they got their taste several games. Not enough, but they did get some taste. So what are you expecting of all those young kids who last year had no experience, and now they got some?
2: Yeah. Um, so especially for the first time starters and uh, all the young guys um, just a little bit more clean up in their play but ultimately I want them to go out there and be freer uh, be more free I guess you could say um, understanding that the moment is never too big because we've been playing this game our whole lives and as long as we've been playing you know you should never be afraid to go out and make a mistake or you know um, just be afraid to go play your game Um, and I think getting their feet wet helped their confidence uh, so much and um, I really just want to see them you know take that next step even though it was only five games you know we had a whole offseason of film study based off those games and so I want to see them take that next step um, to being you know elite.
1: So we've been watching Coach Witt's defenses for uh, for a long long time and I, I guess my question is why do you think you fit so well in that defense or why does the scheme complement what you do so well?
2: Yeah um, I think the scheme is amazing and um, personally uh, no matter who's in the uh, defense, I feel like the scheme is gonna have success just because of how it's uh, set up. But I think the scheme personally fits me um, just because uh, of what my ability is and you know what it asks of uh, the backers. So being able to go on the line of scrimmage and you know make plays, get in the backfield, but still getting off the ball and you know, just a regular middle linebacker, side linebacker, and still dropping back in zone coverage, but defending the run. It asks you to do. Um, a a range of different things and I think that fits my skill set.
3: What do you think you need to work on?
2: Um, So the main things that I didn't put on film last year uh, that I I plan on putting on film this year is um, striking and separating, get full extension, um, and then shedding blocks uh, quicker and then fitting up on the ball, being a more functional tackler. So instead of just hitting them, you know, making sure I'm driving them back, I'm getting the hips through, um, eliminating all hesitation, but um, ultimately just taking more chances, uh, eliminate assignment ball and just really going out and playing for football so instead of just focusing on you know just doing my job and you know go out and um just wreak havoc you know and sometimes wrecking havoc you know will do more than just doing your job uh-huh. and you know just getting back to how it was in high school where you would just go out there and you would just just had that mentality of just like... Be all over the place. Just, just be all over the place, no matter what's going on. You know, just that freedom, that freedom.
1: What about the defense as uh, as a whole? What's the, the potential of this defense?
2: Uh, um, I mean, f- based off last year, we were top two, I think, in most major categories in the Pac-12 statistically. Uh, and that just speaks to the scheme and our defensive coordinator and Coach Witt. But um, I think we have the highest expectations as a defense. Uh, we want to lead the league in turnovers. We want to lead the league in third down defense and uh, total yardage. You know, those are our expectations. And I think we are more than capable of upholding those expectations should we do all the right things.
3: How much does Scally yell at
2: you? He doesn't really yell at us, um, especially the veteran guys who have been here the longest. You know, I mean, you know, he doesn't really get on us because we're the ones setting the example and the standard. Some of the younger guys who got to pick it up or aren't necessarily all the way on par with their assignments. Those are the guys he's going to rip them a little bit more just so, you know, they can get up to up to par, you know. Um, but he, I mean, it's, Coach Galli is a great coach and, you know, he doesn't, you know, say anything that doesn't need to be said. So...
1: Did you know that he was once, uh, for a year, a goofball sports radio host on our uh, station?
2: I didn't know that. I know he did a lot of things before coaching, though. I, I didn't know yeah,
3: that. Yeah, it was the year after. It his 2004 when they went to the festival, so it was the next year Oh, uh, he, he had a show on our station.
2: Oh, uh, I didn't know that. I kind of want to go back and hear <laughs> something. we some got to it.
1: know him a little bit. It, <laughs> okay. It, it, it's funny to watch him coach as opposed to the goofball he was on the radio because he's the same guy, <laughs> yeah. but much more Focused. Yeah, I know he's <laughs> definitely a goofball
2: outside of you know the lines and stuff. But uh um, but yeah, whatever like you said, whenever we're in between those lines and his football and his ball, he, he's locked in and you know I you appreciate know, you that. You talk
3: about, about being all over the place in high school and a lot of times, particularly at Utah, guys play other positions in high school uh-huh. and then they up settling at a different position and when they get to the college ranks. What was it like for you as far as what you played, and what you did at the high school level?
2: Yeah, so um um, going into my senior year, my mentality was I'm a wide receiver. I would say about halfway through the season, it was, okay, I'm a free safety. And then <laughs> as soon as I got offered by the University of Utah, this is February, this is uh, like early February um, 2017, I believe, is when I was like, okay, I'm a linebacker. So just the shifting of mentalities, you know, of like, okay, this is what I play this is what I play to, this is what I play. But I took something from all all positions, like, um, a lot of my fluidity comes from my receiver yeah. uh, part of me but a lot of my range and you know versatility in the passing game and open space comes from um, the safety side of me and then I've over the years developed you know how to play backer and you know I still have a ways to go but um, just as far as you know I'm appreciative for my background so did they tell know.
3: you did of U tell you you were linebacker
2: yeah yeah they offered me and they said I want you to play linebacker and I appreciate how upfront they were with me and you know I at first um i obviously took a little bit of thinking but you know i felt like you know linebacker was a perfect position for me um just for, based off how i played and my play style and you know what the scheme had to offer me and the team had to offer handing out hits has
1: got to be better than taking them right
2: 100 <laughs> percent. i wish i would recognize that a little bit earlier i just love scoring touchdowns but um but yeah no i, I definitely you know love middle linebacker and i think it's the best position on the
0: field, in my opinion. There's the youth defensive star, Devin Lloyd, expecting to lead the linebacker core this season for Utah. When we come back, NBA free agency, who's ready for some drama? we got a little bit of news. Also, Jared Butler's press conference as we put a wrap on the draft and look ahead to free agency. Stay with us. He has opted out of $36 million with the Los Angeles Clippers. Of course, he may have done that simply to get more money. It doesn't mean he's leaving the Clippers. He's Kawhi Leonard, so I would assume nothing until it's done, but he is eligible for four years and $176 million. You do the math on that, that. That's a lot more than thirty-six million per year. He is in for a raise, about to about an average of forty-four million a year. And the other thing he can do is just sign for uh, a one-and-one deal and become a free agent in twenty twenty-two, and he'll be eligible for five years and two hundred and thirty-five million, which instead of an average of forty-four million is closer to forty-nine million. So. Money's coming Leonard's way. And I know he jacked up his knees, right ACL, didn't play at the end of the playoffs, missed eight postseason games in a row. Yeah, he's still getting paid. There's no doubt about it. All right. Well, before we get to free agency and what are the Jazz going to do? Um, or are they going to get their point guard back? Basically, is that, that's really what it comes down to. Before we do that, let's listen to Jared Butler's press conference. I know one last look back at the draft. Here's the new Jazz man.
5: Hi, I'm, I'm Jared Butler. Just um, really excited to be here. Um, my journey is come to Utah, so it's a great chapter of my life, and I just uh, can't wait to get to know you guys. I feel like we're going to be talking to y'all a lot, and um, yeah, just excited to be here. Go ahead and open it up. You guys you want to raise your hands if you guys have questions. We'll start there. Okay. Hey, I'm Andrew Larson from the Sully Tribune. Good to meet you. Um, just, can you tell us about kind of how this process unfolded from your point of view, and especially with the Jazz, kind of when you knew they were interested in you, and kind of, you know, when when did they talk to you on draft night, that kind of thing? Yeah, um, it's really a lot to explain. Um, I mean, obviously, I played at Baylor University. The Jazz has some great ties with Baylor, and um, I knew some guys in the front office just from, you know, knowing knowing guys. But um, I think through the draft process, I, I knew they had some interest, but they were at 30, and um, they kind of didn't think that I was going to get to 30. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm here now, so um, that's, that's just about it. And on draft night, it was a... It was a rough night for me, um, but I think then when the drafts—I mean, when the when the Jazz called me—it was just extremely, you know, thankful. And you know, I, this is where I'm supposed to be, and I'm just, you know, honored for sure. Uh, Tony, my name is Tony Jones from the from the Athletic. Um, you know, can you go in a little bit more detail? You know, just about the night, the emotions of the night knowing that you're a guy that that probably has, you know, team's value in the team, certainly, you know, in in, in the middle of the first round, and the slide all the way to 40, um, because it's stuff that's largely out of your control. What are your thoughts there, and and how do you deal with it, and how do you process stuff like that? Yeah, um, um, I have faith, obviously. And um, sometimes when you have faith, you don't know all the answers. You don't know all the um, ins and outs and how things are going to work. Um, but for me, I just tried my hardest to have faith and, um, uh, that the Lord was going to direct me where I needed to go. And, um, you guys, my parents, it was, it was really hard, really tough. Cause like you said, it was something out of my control and, you know, I can't change, you know, who I am physically, you know, that's kind of hard. But, um, like I said, at the end of the day, I think this is where I'm supposed to be. And I'm just so excited. Hi, Jared. Nice to meet
6: you. Yeah. I'm Eric Walden. I work with Andy at the Salt Tribune. Nice. Um,
5: can you take us through, I, I think a lot of people have never heard of the fit-to-play situation before. You can you kind of take us through the process of getting medically cleared by the NBA? Um, was that yeah, it's- the heart condition, the knee condition both? yeah i won't go into specifics about the condition or um whatever right, yeah i'm yeah. not asking you to reveal anything yeah so just kind of take us through what that process was like yeah so it's pretty not um pretty simple um they you know whatever the field of interest is um they get three of the um three doctors um, one from the nba one from the nba players association and then those two doctors collaborate on getting a third doctor to to make it a, a three-person panel and um I got a chance to speak before the panel, and um, me and my agent, and some other representatives that I wanted um, to kind of like state my case and give my last remarks about, you know, this is why I <laughs> should, whatever. And um, so, yeah, and they and they, they um, deliberated and talked through it, and they ultimately came to the decision. Um, I'm Ryan Miller from KSL. I just, what do you like about your state coming here? Yeah, I like how they shoot a lot of threes. Um, Obviously, at Baylor, we shot a lot of threes, too. Catch and shoot, off the dribble, pick and roll. Um, So, yeah, I'm extremely excited about that. And I feel like the culture here is also something I can um, really adjust to. And um, just really great people, honestly. And that's what I'm about. And um, just trying to be a fit and, you know, build up a culture that's, you know, inspiration to other people ben anderson ksl sports Uh, you said you know the lindsays obviously Mm -hmm. have you met quinn snyder yet have you talked to him And, and who else do you know from the team if at all yeah coach quinn was the first person to call me actually um on draft night and um he was pretty emotional understood my story and um relayed to me that he he was just like extremely happy that you know i got to 48 and um you could just tell that he drafted me as a person and Wanted me for, you know, who I am as a person and, and not just, you know, basketball skills. Um, so that was really comforting for me. And um, Jake and uh, Mr. Dennis Lindsay is, uh, is also some people that I know very, very, very well. And they've um, been extremely part of my life. So, yeah. Uh, Sarah Todd from the Desert News. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you know whether or not you're going to be playing in Summer League yet? Have you had talks about that with the guys in front office? Yeah, it's kind of still in, in to, um, debate, but I'm, I'm healthy enough to play, but, yeah. More okay. The more uh, The prospect of playing with guys like Donovan Mitchell, Royce O'Neal, like you said, and, I mean, just some, some very veteran guys, Mike Conley, possibly. Yeah. And what's that like knowing that those are those are the guys that you could be possibly learning from your first season it's like a gold mine for me just because you know the the level where they're at in their career and um, what they're doing is something I want to do so like you know I'm I'm, I have no problem being like Mike like how do I get there how do I be this guy how do I be like you type thing and um so I'm it's like a gold mine for me and um I'm humble enough to, to to realize my role and um, but I think at the same time I can make huge contributions to winning and um, and that's what I'm all about so
1: just what do you want some jazz fans to kind of know about yourself off the court what are you like what do you what what are your hobbies i mean kind of what what are you like
5: besides on the court yeah pretty cool guy um, <laughs> <You can laughs> pretty, brag anything. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I love going to eat with people like literally just going to eat and having genuine conversations. Um, I like going to the lake sometimes, being on the boat, it's kind of nice. Um, but yeah, just I like to smile, laugh, um, pretty genuine and personable person, uh, can talk to anybody, and um, yeah, that's about it. When uh, at Baylor, in, throughout your college career, or I mean, somebody that that played the point, and played the two-round for fortunate is that positional versatility for you and how important has it, do you think it's been for your development to get to this point? Yeah, it's been huge my whole life. Um, I can remember being fourth grade playing on and off the ball and, um, you know, I didn't know at the time, but it was preparing me for the league and how it is right now with guys who, you know, not just because you bring the ball to the court, doesn't mean you're not coming off the ball screen, um, things like that. So I, I, I've been prepared for it my whole life and, um, it's definitely something that I think is going to be come to my advantage and allow me to get on the court quicker because I'm not um, confined to one position. Uh, why did you go back to school after your or after your sophomore year? Why? Yeah, you probably got drafted last year. Yeah, right? for sure. Um, I just think um, from the counsel of the people around me, um, they said I could be, you know, a first round pick. That didn't happen, but but also our team is going to be really good. Um, you know, we had a chance to win a national championship we had a chance to just win the Big 12. So that was that was the other reason. Too. What did you learn from that? What did I learn? Yeah, just from going back. And- um, oh, a lot of stuff, especially about just me as a person, handling adversity, how to win um, at the highest level, um, playing with guys who are also at a, at a high level and, you know, NBA players as well. Um, and then also building a culture and, like, having it as your own. You know what I mean? It's, it's a hard thing to do. Um, especially as like college kids and, you know, you're trying to, you know, get the nation to be on notice of what you're doing and, you know, that's something that we did. Any more questions in the room? Okay. So, good. Okay. We'll move over to the zoom now. I've ahead, Danny.
4: You said look straight, right?
5: Yeah.
4: Okay. Great. Yeah. So if you're in the zoom room, please raise your hand. If you have a, a question for Jared, we'll start with, uh, Danny green, ABC four.
3: Hey, Jared. Um, can you hear me?
5: Yeah, yeah. We're
3: good. Okay, cool. Hey, uh, I just want to know what that experience of winning a national championship was like for you and, and how much, uh, I mean, playing such an, in such a big-time environment like the Final Four, how does that prepare you for your uh, first year in the NBA?
5: Yeah, it's extreme um, stage. I mean, like, it's, it's a kid's dream. Anybody that plays college, they want to win a national championship. And um, for me, it was just... Like the relationships I built with the team, um, it's like it's going to last a, life long, a lifetime and, um, you know, to cap it off with that moment and, you know, working so hard and not knowing whether or not you're going to win. It's, it's just it's just something so fulfilling. Um, but I, I think it's more so the, the relationships I built and not so much the, the championship, because at the end of the day, it's just a game. But, you know, the people and the people we inspired was like really cool.
4: Great. Next, we'll go to Nayo Campbell, utahjazz.com.
5: Hi, Jared. Nice to meet you. Um, So as a rookie, what impact do you want to have both on the court and off the court? Um, I think on the court, I don't want to be a liability. I don't want to, I don't want you to know that I'm a rookie. Um, I want you to think that as if I've been playing in the league for, you know, six or seven years. Um, And also just, not I don't stick out so that's kind of the same thing but like you don't say like all oh, this guy like is this guy a rookie that's that's kind of like my thing on the court and I think off the court um, um adding to the culture and not um, making a negative impact being a positive impact to the culture of the team and um what the organization is about and um and being about the right things that's that's kind of what I'm trying to do on and off the court.
4: And then, Dana, did you have a follow-up for Jared?
3: Yeah, I just wanted to know, Jared, did you have any experience with Salt Lake City or with Utah before you you, uh, you got here? Any uh, – any, uh, or what are your thoughts of Salt Lake now that you've been here for a little bit?
5: Yeah, so we played an NCAA tournament game here in Salt Lake, and um, we actually got a chance to practice in the facility, so that was pretty cool. Um, but other than that, that was my only experience beforehand. But today, you know, the mountains are cool. Uh, the scenery, I don't think it, it can ever get old. And um, the weather's nice. I'm from New Orleans, so it's hot and you're sweating as soon as you get outside. But here it's just a nice little breeze. So that's about it.
0: All right. There is Jared Butler. When we come back, Ron Barker, Pac-12 Assistant Commissioner for Enforcement. And oh, boy, he also worked for the NCAA as an investigator. And he got stories for you. He is going to blow your mind. Coming up next, stay with us. College sports with Ron Barker. Ron Barker joined the Pac 10 as an assistant commissioner for governance and enforcement in October of 2001 and was promoted to associate commissioner in February of 2006. We're going to talk with him as he joins us right now on the Smart Rain Guest Line. July is considered Smart Irrigation Month. To celebrate Best of State award winner, Smart Rain has given away free smart controllers to commercial properties until the end of July. Hosting costs not included. Visit SmartRain.net or call 877-346-3333 for more information. Ron, good morning. Good morning, how are you? Good. So, Ron, you are a former BYU assistant basketball coach under Roger Reed, and then you eventually graduated to Kraken Skulls in the Pac-10. I'm sorry, did I embellish that too
6: much? No, that's pretty much what I
0: did. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, so uh, I think a lot of people driving around you know, have heard stories about how much cheating is going on. And as a longtime member of the media, I have heard spectacular stories. And I will say, when is the last year that you were involved in the uh, con- conference governance?
6: So I left the PAC-12 in October of this past year, October 2020. So I left for 19 years, and I was involved in everything that went on during that time. The most, Some of the most recent stuff, there's still an ongoing FBI men's basketball investigation involving about 20 schools. And I was in the middle of that, and I don't know why it's taking the NCAA so long. But it does sometimes, and this one's taking forever. Okay, so
0: you basically stole ninety percent of my question. You're a BYU guy, and I'm not. So I was going to say, why does it take the NBA so bleepin' or the NBA, the NCAA so bleeping long? But can you explain to people why, if there's FBI wiretaps, we're sitting around a couple years later and nothing's happened to some of these schools?
6: Yeah, so any time law enforcement gets involved, it just extends the process. The NCAA usually takes a wait and, and wait for the law enforcement to get done before they'll move on it. So, you know, this one's taking forever. The the uh, Marcy Blues case where the parents were driving uh, coaches and making them look like they were athletes so they could get their kids into schools, that's still ongoing with the NCAA as well, too, as well, even though some of the parents have served prison time and been out of prison for a while. So it just takes a while. If it doesn't involve the, uh, law enforcement, then you can get it done more more quickly. But even then, it'll still take up to a year. The, the Reggie Bush USC case that I worked on took four years. And even to this day, they don't know. For sure. They People don't know what actually happened in that one.
0: Okay, side note on the Reggie Bush deal. So his parents got a new home in Spring Valley. This will shock you, but I didn't actually grow up in San Diego. I grew up in the suburb of Spring Valley. And I lived on the western edge by Sweetwater Lake when I was in elementary school. And then in junior high and high school, between 7th and 8th grade, we moved out to kind of the eastern edge, Steel Canyon, where that new high school is out there. For the life of me, when you're Reggie Bush, how do you not end up with a house in La Jolla? What do you do with a house in Spring Valley? Can you shed any light on what happened there? Because... I've lived in Spring Valley. You're Reggie
6: Bush. Yeah, so this is a perfect example. Since you're from there, I'm from Orange County, California. Uh At the time, everyone kept making a big deal about, oh, he's living in a three-quarter of a million dollar house. They didn't get the house. They just lived there for free for a year. So they didn't get the house, but they lived there. But I kept telling the NCAA people, look, three-quarters of a million dollars in San Diego isn't the same as three-quarters of a million dollars in Indianapolis. And that took a long time for them to get that through their heads. And I said, go out to San Diego and look at the house, and you'll see what we're talking about. But in the Reggie Bush case, the, Reggie Bush's stepdad was going kind to of start a sports marketing firm with a guy named, uh, I may not even go into names, but they're the guy who's well-known, and Reggie Bush didn't know they were doing it. And so the, the NCAA kept trying to link it to USC, saying USC's involved in this, and every time they tried to tie it to Pete Carroll, they struck out. So I actually sat between Pete Carroll and Lane Kiffin at the hearing, and they kept trying to figure out, how is USC involved in this? And they never really tied it much to USC, except for a couple of phone calls between an assistant coach and the guy who was doing this with Reggie Bishop's stepdad. And in some of the interviews we found out, we found out why some of those phone calls were going on. So I'm not an apologist for USC by any means. i worked at the Pac-12 or 11 schools, wanted to see them go down, but... At the, that was one of probably one of the biggest miscarriages of justice for actually what USC was involved in doing.
0: So I think people assume that over the years USC has cheated a lot, but I think people assume that in the last 10 to 15 years, Oregon's been doing their fairest cheating, and nothing worse than the Will Willie Lyles, that lame explanation. I didn't know who you were talking about. Oh, please. So how guilty is Oregon of using middlemen and runners to get athletes, and is UCLA not doing that? And is that the biggest difference between how much Chip Kelly won in Oregon and how much he isn't winning at UCLA?
6: No, I think the big thing with the the Oregon case at the time with Willie Lyles was everybody was doing that, with what Oregon was doing. Oregon got caught. I used to laugh and say at the Pac-12, you know, some of our schools are doing what everybody's doing. We're just not as good at it. And so when Oregon got caught doing something that probably 70% of the schools were doing at the time, it was just another case of, okay, so the, you need to get better at how you do this, which I shouldn't say that. But there, there are things going on that everybody does. It's like speeding on the freeway. That's the example I used to use. When you're driving on the California freeways, hardly anybody's going 65. And if a policeman pulls you over and you're going 75, you can't say well, look, everybody's doing it. You're the one who got caught. And so that's what happens a lot in college sports is somebody gets caught for doing something that everybody's doing. Um, you know, I, I what I'm trying to do now, I left. I wasn't able to talk about my case. I wasn't able to talk about what I was doing. And so for 20 years, I sat and worked, and people would come up to me, my friends who knew what I was doing, and say, you know, tell me what's going on here, and I couldn't. And so the stories that are out there, people don't have a, a kind of you kind of get the, uh, the subterfuge a little bit, and the, the media covers a little bit on the top, and then it's forgotten. So people don't really know the details of what's going on. So what I'm trying to do now is write fictional books based on actual cases. So the first one I wrote is called The Reluctant Players, and it's on Amazon. It's, it's about a junior college basketball coach who basically taught, taught his two-star players how to cheat on a math class, a correspondence math class, and then once they did and were successful in it, he then blackmailed them and said, if you don't go to this Division One school that I'm going to get hired at, I'm going to expose you. And, and that happened? It kind of goes on. And that yeah, happened? It happened. Actually, true case, yes.
0: Tell us which league.
6: I'm not going to tell you. I'm oh, not come going tell you. on. Because one of the purposes for me is I don't want to expose people that have gone through things 20 years ago. If someone's guilty... You know, you can go and read about They're all the innocent people that got caught events. The two players in this. They cheated on a math class, which isn't great, but then they got blackmailed into going into a school they didn't want to go to with a coach they didn't like and it ruined their career. they never ended up doing anything. They were both pretty good players.
0: So the SEC, huh?
6: I'm not gonna this. <laughs> okay. I am not okay, I, so- I was at the, the NCA for about two and a half, almost three years, enough to see what how, how messed up it is and how hard it is to be in enforcement there. I worked SEC cases quite a bit. I worked all over the place at the NCA. And, you know, there's things that go on that people have no clue about. And you get a tip of the iceberg when someone big gets caught. That when the stuff that's going on day to day after day, and, unless it's a big school, people don't care that much about it.
0: So, do, do SEC schools cheat more and do they cheat more competently? Those are two different things, but the quality and the quantity of the cheating, that's the perception. How close is it to the reality?
6: You know, I don't know that you can say anyone cheats more or, you know, sometimes it's just someone. You know, the fact when there's a PAC 10, I used to process 250 violations a year. So, I was about 25 per school. And most of them weren't cheating as much as someone just made a mistake. And what the goal was to try to teach them from it, put a little penalty on it, and then move on and hope they don't do it again. When you get to the bigger stuff, the the actual real cheating, it takes a concerted effort to do it and get away with it. And so there's not as much as people that's going on, but the, what is going on is very well organized. And so the people have the most money, I think, are the ones who are, ones are able to do it better. They know how to do it. I, I don't accuse anybody. I have a lot of good friends. Greg Sankin and I are a good friend with the Commissioner of SEC. So I don't accuse anybody. I just think there are some people that are better than others. <laughs>
0: Okay, so we're joined right now by a former BYU assistant basketball coach, Ron Barker, coached uh, under Roger Reed, late 80s, early 90s, and then head of compliance for Pac-12, was there for a couple decades. And you know, because of your time at the NCAA, some of the stuff that happened nationally. So PK and I have been doing the radio show since 2002. And before that, we moved to the market in 92-93. So we've heard a lot of stuff. And... Stuff that we believe is true, but we can't prove because one angry person leaks it, but you don't have it confirmed by somebody else, and you know there's an agenda, so you got to be super careful. But there's been enough stuff out there, both locally, regionally, and nationally, that we kind of get a feel for what's going on, even if we can't prove any individual specific case. You're writing these books, are you ever going to write a book about a star athlete who everyone knows, who not only got paid to go to school, but was able to charge as much as 25000 for a home visit because it helped the other schools recruit to say they were in on this star player, and a home visit held them recruit other star players who wanted to play with said player.
6: So, I'm, I, everything I'm going to write is going to be fictional, based mm-hmm. on real cases. Right. So, I'm never going to point the finger and say, hey, who's doing this, and, and this is what's happening. Right. That's not my goal. I don't want to do that. I've 20 years lived that. I am writing real cases. This is a real case. I believe
0: this is a real things. case. I believe yeah. that and really I, happened.
6: I, I, When I was at the NCAA, I a, investigated a case that you can go and read about where the high school coach, of the, the player's mom was illiterate and had no dad in the picture. So the high school coach is the one shopping the player around. He charged $5,000 for every visit to a school, and multiple schools took it. And then when he finally sold the guy, sold his own player to a school and took, I think it was $25,000 about a Ford Explorer, the assistant high school coach blew the whistle. And I'm sitting in Memphis, Tennessee at midnight talking to this assistant coach, sitting there going, Blink, what you're telling me is so incredulous. How can you're telling us? How can you're coming forward? And he said, I was supposed to get a car, too, and I didn't get one. And that's why he came forward with it. The high school coach eventually got brought up on charges and served jail time. And I believe it was an old statute on the book about slavery and selling a human being, And that's what they got him on. So stuff like that goes on. And that, and that involves some pretty big schools. The school, you know, there's four or five people at the NCA working on it. And my particular point of it was one school that was paying for the coach, for the high school coach, to bring the kid on a visit, and we we're able to do that. You know, just to give you an example of things. My very last case at the NCA that I was involved with was Rick Majeris and I told Utah when I came, I said, "Look, I used to work at BYU. I want to be fair. I want to be on melting up and, up, and I have no axe to grind. I liked Rick Majeris I thought he was a great coach." And the NCAA couldn't get over, it. well, he's living in a hotel. And I said, yeah, he lives in the hotel. So when he takes a kid on a, a dinner, you know, you can take an occasional meal back at the time, and he took the player to dinner at the hotel, that's his home. And the NCAA said, no, that's not permissible. And so they went after him for a whole bunch of stuff, for having pizza practice and just dumb stuff. And I kept sitting there going – you mean there's all this stuff going on and we're going after a coach who's taking the kids to dinner where he lives at the hotel? And that was the kind of stuff that drove me crazy at the NCAA when there's big, big stuff going on. But the NCAA has got their hands tied. They you know, have no subpoena powers. They can't touch get people to force them to talk to them. They can't lie about what they're doing. You know, It's, it's a, almost a miracle to catch anything at all.
0: Now that name, image, and likeness money is legal, for lack of a better term, can the money essentially be laundered? Money that was being paid to get kids to certain schools and all that, can they now just find a booster, a business to take care of a kid? And so is a lot of what was illegal going to be legal?
6: Well, when they were talking name, image, and likeness, and I was in on the conversations, I would be the only one in the room with the experience of doing enforcement. And I would sit there going, wait a second. So what you're telling me now is if I'm a booster at a big school and have unlimited money, I can tell a high school kid, hey, I'm going to do a T-shirt business for you. You're going to make so much for T-shirts, and we're going to guarantee you're going to sell 100,000 T-shirts. And everyone goes, no, no, you can't do it as part of incentive and recruiting. I'm like, how are you going to catch that? So you basically, to catch a booster could actually do that and, and have agreement with the kid in advance that we are going to give you this amount of money as long as nobody can prove that he had that agreement as a recruiting tool. So, yes, that's going to happen. I think it's naive to think it's not going to happen.
0: So are we going to get to the point then that the only schools to get busted are the ones where law enforcement gets involved for one reason or another, and those cases will probably be few and far between?
6: Or you're going to be, That's one possibility. You're also going to have cases, which I've had before, where a family feels like what's going on is terrible, so they tape record coaches or play or the boosters telling them things in advance. So if you can get some kind of proof of that, then, then you're able to get that. The case I worked on that I wrote the book on, the reluctant players, is, it's the, one of the reasons we've had a tough, tough time getting it is how do you prove that a school's going to hire a coach if he brings players with him? You know, that's almost impossible to prove. That in this particular case, there was an ex-wife with an ax to grind who had all of the proof and mailed it to me anonymously, and I got everything showing them, the cheating on the test, showing who helped and how they did it. And that's the only way you catch this kind of stuff. Do you think so that I used, to, oh, I used to talk to coaches and say they'd complain about something. i say, how can I prove that? And they'd say, well, I'm not going to talk on the record. And I'd say, well, if I don't get you on the record, then how do I prove it? And they'd say, well, I'll give you advance notice and we'll film it for you and we'll send it to you. you know, And, and so that, you know, it takes a coach getting really mad because one of the big problems is coaches don't turn each other in, but then they complain about all the cheating that goes on. So it's hard to do that. But, yeah, it's going to take either law enforcement or it's going to take somebody that has enough of an axe to grind that they're going to go and tape it themselves or film it themselves.
0: Ron Barker, former head of compliance for the Pac-12 and a BYU assistant basketball coach from 1989 to 91, joining us. So, in the past, there have been cases where boosters want to hang out with star athletes and take them on trips and vacations, and the NCAA would go after people for that kind of stuff. But under name, image, and likeness, is that all going to be okay now? If you have money and you want to buddy up uh, to some star athlete, is that okay? You
6: no, know, you have to. there has to be some kind of uh, service rendered. The athlete can't just have... You know, you could you can get really creative and find ways to do what you want to do, but there has to be. You can't just say I want to be a buddy and take this person to wherever Vegas or wherever. You have to say we're going to go there and we're going to have an autograph signing show or something of that nature where this staff is actually doing something. So but it's going to be interesting to watch this unfold. Right now, I think everybody's really the alarmist, and there's not going to be that many kids who profit a lot off of it. But every kid that is from a small town can go back and do a summer camp at that town and make a little bit of money. And when, when I started in college athletics, my attitude used to be athletes shouldn't get paid. They're getting college scholarships. I work my butt off to get the same thing they're getting, and they get tutors, and they get, you know, it's, it's really a good deal for the athlete, and they, and they get a degree that is worth how much money the rest of their life I've completely changed. I'm 180 degrees different because you have coaches making five, six, seven million dollars, commissioners making five million dollars. So why shouldn't the student athletes get their share? I've changed in in that regard over the last 20 years.
0: So, give me one more book idea you're working on that you haven't written yet, but you're gonna you're gonna get to it. You got the knowledge.
6: Well, I'm working on my uh, the second one's almost done, and the third one just starting. It's about a. Uh, a school that had a star running back and he ended up he was a 19 year old inner city kid and he had an affair with the head of compliance at the school who was a 30 year old woman who was very prim and proper and when I did the interview the kid kept telling me that she was giving him things and I said you know I talked to her and I've talked to you no offense to you but do you have any kind of proof and I talked to him several times I just didn't believe him he hands me his phone and shows me text messages with the most vulgar things I'd ever read in my life from that 30 year old head of compliance. And when I confronted her with it, she said, uh, and got up and walked out of the room with her attorney and, and left Left her job, completely disappeared. In the middle of the case, the star football player got into an altercation at a dance club, totally unrelated, and ended up stabbing and killing somebody who was also a former player at the school. When they called me the next day, it was on Saturday morning. I thought he killed a woman and I was like, "Oh my goodness! I can't believe this just happened." It just like it makes you feel sick. And then I found out it was it's Still terrible. That player obviously no longer plays. He's in jail. I think I don't remember if he's on death row or if he just got a lifetime sentence. But those are the kind of things that happen. You just don't hear about.
0: Well, you stunned Jake and I right there at the end of the interview with that. Holy cow! Yeah,
6: the, the, the one you know the the. the first one I wrote, the reason I picked it, is because it's just such an easy thing to understand. What this coach did, he's a junior college coach, he said to the two players, you have to take the correspondence class because you can't pass the math class. Then he wore gloves every time he touched paperwork because he had been involved in a violation earlier at another school. He helped him with the test. He went to two tutors for the junior college who are 18-year-old girls who whom had no clue what he was doing. And he went to one and said, these players have to do the even problems. If you'll do the odd problems, he can work, they'll see how you work it out and they'll be able to do it. And then he went to the other one and said the exact opposite. So the girls were doing everything, not knowing it. And then he would take the papers. The players would copy them over in their own handwriting, and then he would turn it in. When he came for the final exam, he had to have it proctored. So he went to the superintendent of state of schools so for the state of Mississippi, not in what school that, who was a buddy of his and said, hey, will you practice this exam? I'll bring some beer out. And we'll watch a game while they take it. And so they sat in the guy's house and copied over a final exam that the coach had had the girls do, like, by covering up when he made it so it didn't say final exam. Then they passed it all. Everything's gone straight. And then he goes to the kids and says, hey, so you're going to get exposed. I'm going to tell everyone what you did. It would be such a shame unless you go to school X. And then he got hired there. When this all got proved and I interviewed him, he had been fired by this time. He was... Getting his law degree, and I interviewed him in the state supreme court chambers where he was working uh, for the state supreme court. So you can't make this stuff up. I mean, it's just unbelievable these kind of things that happen. And I think people would be interested in reading, going, "Hmm, this is just an actual real case. This is how it unfolds." You kind of see how the NCA works and some of the limitations. You see when they screw up, and so I'm trying to give a shed light on something that people just don't know much about. Because even when I am working, when I was looking the USC case, I used to read the media reports, and no, it's not the media's fault. They just don't have the, the understanding of how the in-state process works and how, how weird it is. And so I would read things on ESPN and go, man, that's completely wrong with what's happening. But I couldn't talk, and I wasn't gonna talk to anybody. So I'm hoping through this to kind of shed a little bit more light so people can read the books and go, oh, oh, and then when you'll see a future case maybe you won't be so quick to judge or rush to judgment. Maybe you'll want to hear a little bit more and be able to think a little bit more critically about, okay, here's what I'm reading, but what actually is going on? And and I think you'll be able to understand things a little bit more clearly.
0: So where can people get these books?
6: The first book's on Amazon. If you type in Ron Barker or The Reluctant Players, it's there. The second one I'm pretty close to having done, I think I can do two a year is what I'm thinking. So I'm hoping to have, I've already laid it out, six to eight books. And I can do more than that, but that's just to see if it gets going. Ultimately, I'd like to do get into a TV show like Law & Order Meets the Sports World. When I was at the Pac-12, I got approached twice by TV people. One time it was just someone wanted to do a reality show, and I said, you can't do this in a reality show because who in the middle of an investigation is going to give up and find the rights away and, and let everyone explode? And that's not going to happen. And then the other time I got blown out by a guy who worked for David Letterman in a worldwide pants and they wanted me that they wanted to talk to me about it and I thought, Oh, this is gonna be good and they they loved it and they thought it was fascinating and then they said, Okay, thanks and I went, Well why did you fly me out here? And the guy said, Well, we only do comedy and I said, okay, so why am I here? And he said, oh, we had money left in our research budget. We just wanted to talk to you. We think this is fascinating. <laughs> so, you know, it's just so weird. That guy ended up producing the movie Concussion with, uh, with Will Smith, and he stayed in touch with me. He thinks it's a great idea, and he's trying to sell it around. But, you know, I just every time he talks to you me, know, I'm like, oh, I don't know how much poll he has in Hollywood. It's not my world. I don't know it. So, But I keep thinking that would be a great TV show.
0: I think that kind of stuff in Hollywood, there's a lot of stuff that's on the back burner and only a small percentage ever gets to the front burner, but you just have to stay in touch with people who have stuff on the back burner because nobody really ever knows what's going to get made.
6: Yeah, and for me, I couldn't talk for 20 years about my job, so, you know, it's, it's kind of, now all of a sudden, I'm even these interviews, like right now, I'm sitting there going, well, how much can I say, how much can't I say, and, and I, again, I don't have a bad, bad, evil bone in my body, I don't want to burn people, I don't, it's not my desire to expose people, but I'd like to have people understand the process and hear some interesting stories. I go out and do uh, corporate speaking gigs, and do motivational talks, and I tell a lot of these stories, and so people are fascinated by it. When I worked for the Pac-12 and had people I'd say, what do you do? And I'd say, I worked for the Pac-12. They either were fascinated and went, whoa, or they'd go, oh, the phone company? So that's the <laughs> extreme to you get, you know, so I never took it that seriously.
0: Well, Ron, we appreciate a few minutes. Thanks for coming on, and we will, uh, we'll have you on again. We appreciate it.
6: Great. I'll be happy to talk to you. If you ever have an NCAA enforcement thing that comes up and you need some source, give me a call. I'm happy to talk to you, but thanks for the time.
0: Here's Ron Barker, Pac-12 Assistant Commissioner for Enforcement. When we come back... What is trending? All the headlines. Stay with us.